Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. We're going on week three of our month of anthologies. And this week I picked the film. This is a movie that had been on our list forever. It's a film that I had seen, I think, back during one of those months before we were doing the podcast when I would, uh, on Halloween, try to watch a horror movie a day. We're going back a little earlier than we usually do. This is a 1945 British anthology horror film, Dead of Night. It is a bit rare because during this time, horror films were generally banned from production in Britain. At least they were during the war. This film got produced, I guess it was just after the war, right? 1945? I'm not very good with history. Neither. Yeah, so we're just going to pretend I know what I'm talking about. Made by Ealing Studios. And the reason that I chose to watch it originally is this has very good critical reviews, good reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a lot of 30s and 40s British uh, stars in it. Um, some people who are or quite famous for the time, back in these sort of glamorous Hollywood times. It is in black and white, so it's a movie that Craig doesn't usually choose to watch. But we did pretty well the last time we watched a black and white movie. I think that was way back, um, was it uh, Eyes Without a Face? Is that what we saw? Mm. That might be the last one we saw, that French movie. And uh, I think you ended up enjoying that, thought it was suitably creepy. We sure liked it. This one I remembered when I watched it years ago, being pleasantly surprised. Uh, It ended up a little bit darker and a little more sophisticated than I thought it would be for a horror film of this uh, era. And in watching it this time around, I I think I, I feel the same way. I was really happy to put it on the docket. And I figured the only way I could get it on the docket here was if I snuck it in on Craig during our horror anthology month. So <laughs> here we are. I'm, I don't know, man. I'm sorry. Does it sound like I'm trashing you or something? Yeah. I, I just know I know you don't like these really old or at least you don't tend to seek out these really old horror films and you've admitted to me in the past that black and white even just isn't really your thing you maybe i'm selling you a little too short here i'm just anticipating how you might feel about it but maybe i better just let you speak for yourself well i mean you're not wrong but to say (laughs) to say that you have to sneak it in that's bullshit like (laughs) (laughs) all right fair enough well it's not like you put up a fight i never say i never say no I never no, say true. no, I'm not going to watch this. That's true. Uh, but you're right. You know, I, I don't typically watch stuff like this. That's not to say that I don't, I don't know. I just don't really seek them out. But there are movies like To Kill a Mockingbird is one of my favorite movies. I love mm. that movie. And it's old and in black and white. I like The Wizard of Oz. You know, like, I, I like <laughs> it starts some starts out old, in black and white. <laughs> I know. I, I like some old Hollywood stuff. The, you know, the original, um, uh, of mice and men, uh, I, I Casablanca really probably. Uh, I don't know if I've seen that one, but you know, it's uh, I, I'm I'm willing to give them a shot. I, I I don't write them off outright just because they're older. Okay, but this, uh, yeah, I I I didn't love it. <laughs> All right, it, Fair it enough. just it 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 felt really old. The style of acting. It is fine, but it's it's just it's very old Hollywood. There's there's yeah. something that's a little bit more, and, and I say Hollywood. This isn't made in Hollywood. This is a British film, but it feels very old Hollywood. And that the acting style is just a little. I, I feel like today we anticipate a little bit more authenticity, like people acting like 
people in the real world, whereas in old Hollywood and in this movie, it feels very much like actors. In fact, this feels much to me like a play. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very presentational, right? The yes. acting style back right. then. You're right. It, it, it's, it's sort of in between realistic but presentational, much like a stage actor is, right? Right. I suppose so. Right. Which, again, nothing inherently wrong with that. Just not really my cup of tea. And this movie, I mean, it, I, I, I totally see, and I'm sure that you have done the research and will inform me on all of this, but I, I see <laughs> how this is a precursor to all of these anthology films that we love. But in being from 1945, for me, in 2022, it's just a little too tame. Right. And yeah, it's not going to scare the pants off you. That's no, I didn't find it scary at all. That's not to say that the ideas weren't clever. And if I read them in short story form, I think that I would think that they were clever. But watching them play out in film in this kind of presentational way, it just, I don't know. It felt like something I would watch with my grandma. <laughs> it probably is something you'd watch with your grandma. I mean, to be fair, it, right? it reminded, yeah, I mean, it reminded me of when I was a little kid and I would go out to my grandparents' farm and they would only have, you know, like the three network channels and we would sit and watch like Bonanza or something like that. It, it felt like it was for old people. Well, well, first of all, I think many people credit this movie as being maybe the first horror anthology film, or at least one of the first yeah. films that, that have this format of a wraparound story and these Twilight zone tales in the middle. And most of them are based on short stories. In fact, one of them is based on an H.G. Wells story, and not the one I thought it would be, actually, when I went back and looked it up. But yeah, they're, they're probably very good literary stories, but in told in this way with the constraints of the time period, I think, what was acceptable on screen, right. what was not. And like you said, also just sort of the technical and, and acting, just the way movies were done. They were generally more for all audiences back then. You couldn't do films that, um, or at least you couldn't do films and expect to make any money out of them, you know, that were a little too narrow in their focus. And and this is right at the time of the Hayes Code in Hollywood. I'm, Britain had the same thing. Uh, where, you know, there were just things you couldn't say and do on in movies. You can apply a bit, you know, you can kind of use coded stuff. And there's a little bit of that in here, slyly stuck in. But on the whole, you don't even get like the ghostly scares that mm -hmm. you get. And, and there are films actually from this period that do manage to become creepier and have some of those ghostly scares despite it all. This film just doesn't even really attempt it. This is like a Twilight Zone episodes, I think. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Part of what makes it a little tedious at times to sit through is because you know the ending's a mile away because you've seen these stories a thousand times since then. Right. So most of them don't feel terribly original, although maybe they felt more original at the ori you know, back in 1945. Right. I mean, even... Even the twist, like, e even the frame story has a twist, but it's so clearly projected right from the beginning that you know exactly what's going on. So yeah. there there are no surprises. Honestly, it's almost like they're not even trying, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, like you said, it's kind of like they discuss it yeah. during the framing story, and then it ends up being 
kind of more or less what they thought it was, or at least what one character thinks it is. Right. All right. Well, I, unless you have a history lesson for us. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not going to launch into a 15-minute you know, thing on horror comics or the 19, <laughs> filmmaking of the 1940s, if that's what you're anticipating. No. <laughs> you just oh, want to dive well, in. Well, good. I, I, I was going to a nice change of pace, I suppose. Oh. Well, <laughs> you can introduce the movie next time, you know. <laughs> I will. Thank you very much. But no, the, the reason I say we should get into it, okay, first of all. There are a lot of stories. It, there's a lot of stories. You said you would originally pick something else, and you, you changed your mind and said, don't read anything about this in advance, which, you know, I appreciate that warning. I like to be surprised. I don't like to have surprises spoiled. So I didn't read anything about it. But right before watching it, I did go to the IMDb page just to kind of, you know, see what it was rated, which it's not, see if I recognized any of the actors, which I didn't. And uh, But one of the things that I was excited to see was that it was only an hour and 17 minutes long. Mm. And then I pulled up the video, and it was about an hour 40, I think. Yep. Um, yep. So as it turns out, the people who distributed the American release decided that the original European cut was too long. And so they cut out uh, two of the segments, which led to some confusion in American audiences because in the finale of the movie, things converge and uh, it, w- it was confusing. And, and I can imagine yeah. um, why I would have been very... Point. Yeah, I would have been very confused. But... What we watched, I believe, is uh, the original European cut, and so it has all of the stories, and there are um, a lot of them, and I want to talk about all of them, but we're going to have to move through them pretty quickly if we want to keep it at about an hour. So the wraparound story, there are long opening credits, like annoyingly long. (laughs) Then you see this guy, his name is Walter Craig, and I think they call him Craig most of the time he drives up to this nice country estate and as soon he drives up to it and he stops in front of it and he looks and he's got this very puzzled look on his face like you can tell already he's feeling like something is off or strange or whatever and he's greeted by a guy named Elliot Foley it was kind of difficult to keep up with some of the dialogue and I found myself um pausing and going back a lot uh is is Walter the architect of this no, well, he's an architect. I, I don't know if he's an architect of this house, but they want to do some renovations on this house. So okay. that's why he's been called, yeah. So he's there for like a consultation. And Elliot brings him in. You can just tell right from the beginning. He, It's like he's experiencing deja vu or something. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's familiar with the house. He's familiar with the people there. Mrs. Foley, which is Elliot's mother, greets him and brings him into this parlor where there are several people gathered and she introduces him to the rest of the guests. Um, there's a Mrs. Joan Cortland who is, um, I would guess kind of a younger middle aged. She looks like kind of a, a woman of high class. She's got kind of this dark updo, um, pretty, whatever. Then there's a Dr. Van Straten who is this heavyset bald doctor with glasses. I, I, I think he's, German or something. He's got an accent. Yeah, he has that very stereotypical doctor, yeah, doctor the, psychology. The, uh, very you know, Sigmund um, Freud or something. I don't yes. know. Um, <laughs> then there's a guy named Hugh Granger who is a race car driver. He's tall, dark, and handsome. And then there's uh, a girl named Sally 
who's young, probably in her late teens or very early 20s, but she's obviously played young. Yeah. And he's acting weird, and he's like, oh, you're all still here, so it isn't a dream this time. Like I said, like, it's just so clearly projected. Like, as soon as he says that, you're like, oh, he's been through this before. Mm-hmm. And, and they just, they keep reiterating, he keeps talking about it, and he keeps predicting things that will happen, and they keep happening. Dr. Van Straten, you're a psychiatrist. You always treat me. You'll treat me now, won't you? Just forgive me, I don't quite understand the joke. It isn't a joke. I only wish it were. I've seen you in my dreams. Sounds like a sentimental song, doesn't it? I've dreamt about you over and over again, Doctor. That hardly turns you into a mental case. After all, recurring dreams are quite common. But how did I come to dream about you? I've never set eyes on you in my life. He says he's seen them in his dreams. And he says somebody else will be joining them later, a pretty girl who needs money, and that ends up happening. And Dr. Van Straten is the cynical realist of the group and he doesn't believe any of this but all of the other guests are at least interested and each of them have had an experience in their life that has been somewhat unexplainable and so each of them tells their story and that's what the stories are made up of yeah Although, you know, I think the framing story was, I, like 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 we said earlier, I don't think it was meant to be too twisty, just because, like you said, it's, it's projected from the beginning, it's almost hammered into your head, it's what the characters discuss, is that he believes he's been here before, and that he knows bad things are going to happen after a certain time, someone's going to break their glasses, all that's doled out bit by bit, but pretty heavy on in the beginning. Yeah. I feel like the purpose of the framing story in this is more... Or the discussion of this. I thought, interesting, because every time somebody tells a story or every time he talks about what might happen and what comes up and what ends up happening, Dr. Van Straten always has, like, a scientific explanation for it. Mm-hmm. You recognize me because you must have seen me in my picture in the paper earlier, or, you know, this person reminds you so much of a person who, you know, you meant a lot to you in the past and, and brings up that thing of that event. That's why you get these pictures. Honestly, these are even modern explanations for deja vu. Mm -hmm. And so I I liked this sort of tension between, um, you know, the movie doesn't commit to, hey, this is all supernatural. It seems to relish in batting it back and forth. And you do get this sense that it like everybody else is appropriately skeptical but not nearly as skeptical as the doctor is who just won't believe anything is supernatural at all right but he's willing to entertain the stories and give his explanations and I actually liked that bit of it and 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 so I thought that I thought the wraparound story was a little more sophisticated than you usually find in these kinds of movies oh i think it works really well as a wraparound you're right i agree i mean it it is a story in itself it doesn't feel superfluous it's 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 fine um and and i did appreciate too that the other characters like you said are appropriately skeptical but they're also curious because they've had these experiences that they can't really explain either so they're at least open to the notion that maybe something could be going on but they're not concerned or scared either like oh right maybe okay well you know i mean it just conjures up and this is one thing i really like about this movie is 
for me, movies are escapism. And I think another reason why I like these old movies is it conjures up a different time. It's like a window in the past. Basically, the contemporary past of when this movie was made, when people had a different way of entertaining themselves. <laughs> you know? <laughs> we weren't sitting around watching movies together. There was no television. You look ab- back on it, and it's very quaint. And these, what would you call them, like parlor dramas, right? Where mm-hmm. people spend their evenings sitting around the fire, drinking and smoking, and just entertaining each other, trying to tell witty stories and trying to give witty, smart observations, but also being very polite and respectful of each other because you don't want to be rude and have a big argument. You just want to make sure that everybody is a suitably entertained and, and nothing gets too tense, and, and, and that's what I kind of liked about this and some of the stories that then therefore come, come about also show you a little bit more of what entertainment was like at this time. And so, uh, yeah, I, I liked that. I, I really actually liked coming back to this framing story almost as much as the individual stories itself, just to see how each of the participants would react and how they would treat each other. Right. And discuss what what they had just heard and i'll agree with you that that is refreshing because if this movie were made today it would not be a group of intelligent adults sitting around telling these stories it would be a group of too witty too cynical sexy 20 somethings telling these stories and and they would just be too witty for their own good too yeah and and this is a little bit more ground you know these feel like normal intelligent adults adults. right (laughs) yeah you know except for sally who is young but just a young girl that's it but the first one to tell his story is hugh and he's the one who was a race car driver he tells the story of how he wrecked his car in a race and he was badly hurt and he was hospitalized for some time there's some cute banter between him and a nurse which was giving me all kinds of shades of like farewell to arms it's very hemingway you know with the wounded male you know flirting with the cute nurse and blah sexually blah. harassing the nurse oh yeah, yeah totally i mean com- <laughs> really inappropriate but like it, it was a more innocent time <laughs> it was really expected at this time oh man's in bed cute nurse comes in he's got oh, a comment or two i think it was you know a Check it off of every script from this era. <laughs> both of my both of my grandfathers served in the military. My mother's father served in World War II. He faced heavy combat. He was on the front lines. He didn't like to talk about it. But every once in a while, he would tell a little story. And um, I remember I was very small. And uh, <laughs> I think that um, it was probably just me and my dad because sometimes we would get up very, very early, like three or four in the morning during hunting season and go out to his farm. And, and he, at that point, like he wasn't too old to go out. He was just too old to care to go out. So no. um, huh. he would get up in the morning, like three or four o'clock in the morning and make us breakfast. But then he would just send us off. Um, but I remember one time, I don't remember the context of it all. And I wish I did. I lost him when I was in seventh grade. And I wish that I had had the opportunity to talk to him more about these things. But I remember him telling a story about how he had been injured in combat. And um, he was in the field hospital and he had been kind of flirting with this nurse. And uh, 
I just remember that the punchline of the story, and I believe this story to be true, was that, you know, they had been kind of flirting, and then one evening he woke up and she was in bed with him. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, wow. the, that's the end of the story as I remember it. But <laughs> <laughs> That's all he cared to tell you, your young ears, right? <laughs> I, oh, he wasn't telling me, he was telling my dad, and, and I can only imagine that my dad maybe changed the subject quickly i don't i don't know <laughs> but thinking back on it now I, i'm so charmed by that memory and i i wish i'd had more opportunity but it's that kind of deal and you know that's it like it's just him in the hospital what is it then long past your bedtime listen darling i put it to you there's only one way to kill me permanently and that's to marry me it's your professional duty <laughs> you've got a hope then she leaves him alone in the hospital. It's like he hears something outside or something, and he goes and he opens the drapes of his windows, and he sees a funeral carriage, like an old-fashioned, like, horse-drawn funeral carriage yeah. down below. And he looks down, and the driver of the carriage looks up at him and says, Just room for one inside, sir. Which kind of freaks him out, and he closes the drapes and goes back to his bed and he, he notices the time on the clock too is 4 15 well and the time is passing very quickly yeah. like when he gets up it's like 4 15 in the morning but as soon as he goes back to bed it's like nine or so like just bizarre you know something's not right then he goes and sees a psychiatrist and tells him about seeing this uh funeral carriage and the psychiatrist basically tells him that oftentimes when people are in life-threatening accidents or something like that like death ideation is is a normal after effect but when he leaves the psychiatrist he goes to uh board a bus and the porter on the bus turns to him and it's the funeral driver and he says we only have room for one more which freaks him out so he doesn't get on, and then he watches the bus drive away, and it drives off a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> this double-decker English bus goes right off a bridge. It's not a bad little model, actually, to be honest. But uh, oh no, yeah. it looks pretty good. But, but that's it. Like that's it's just an that's just his unexplained story, you know. And yeah, all he, of these stories are like that. They're all very simple and pretty brief. This is one of the briefer ones. But we can, I, I feel that we will be able to recap them all almost as quickly as I did that one because not really a whole lot happens. It's just yeah. kind of spooky situations and they're, they're anecdotal and that's, that's fine. One other important thing was he asked a guy what time it was when he was standing in line. The guy said 4.15, so oh. the time also matched. Yeah, gotcha. but but you're right. I feel like um, they put the quicker stories at the beginning and save the longer stories toward the end, which is, is smart pacing, really. But these stories, some of them end really abruptly, mm -hmm. but it makes its point and it moves on. It's like a very uh, truncated Twilight Zone episode, really. Yeah. But like you said, these are anecdotal, so you know that in the story, it's not like they're going to die, you know. Right. And then I die. <laughs> you know, that doesn't... <laughs> That's not going to happen. <laughs> so it's kind of clever how they you know, are able to recount these while making them anecdotal. It's funny that you say that because actually having just watched Tales from the Crypt, I wondered. I wondered oh, if right. maybe that this was some sort of purgatory or something and they were all telling stories that actually resulted in their deaths, but they just were unaware. 
it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did wonder. Well, he also had mentioned earlier that a penniless brunette was going to come in at some point when they, when everybody was asking. I'm sorry, I'm I'm, I'm back to the Walter that, Craig yeah. at the at the wraparound story, and this woman does come in and mention that she didn't have any money left to pay the fare. What is her name? She is one of. She's the, married to one of them. Who is she? Yeah, she's, Hugh, she's Hugh's wife, Joyce. That's right. That's right. So she comes in, and then you know, Doctor Van Stratten kind of explains that one away by saying it's a joke they're all playing on him, you know, and a bunch of them are denying it and whatever. And he's like, "Well, you know, who knows? It's just kind of a coincidence." The next story is Sally, and Sally. Sally seems like oh, she's always kind of getting ready to leave. Maybe it's getting past her bedtime or something. Yeah. And she's kind of getting ready to go, and they're kind of encouraging her to go, but she ends up staying because she says that this reminds her of an incident that happened to her that freaked her out. So then we go to her story, and her story... Oh, by the way, did you look up who Sally was? No. Sally is Sally Ann Howes, and she is truly scrumptious from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, that movie <laughs> that's that a one? movie that's a movie that we could do on the podcast it's not a horror movie it scared the shit out of me when i was a kid <laughs> no me too oh my I, I wanted God. to show that i thought about showing that to my four-year-old and then i was like mm, no i don't think that movie's right i don't think he's old enough yet <laughs> i saw it in get... school they showed it to us in school and oh. that child catcher gave me not like i was probably watching nightmare on elm street at home and then they showed me chitty chitty bang bang at school and i was terrified i like... know i know <laughs> it was a terrifying movie for a kid the child catcher in that he's creepy <sighs> but, but she um she, it's kind of cute actually she actually died in december Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, she died in December, and apparently she was married to this man that was just the love of her life, and they were inseparable starting in the 70s. I guess her her nephew or whoever said that as soon as he died, it was like she just went like two months later. That happens a lot, I think. Uh, she was <sighs> cute, though, and and I very liked her cute. story. I liked her story, too. Her story I liked very... her story. It's a classic ghost story. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, She's... it's just a classic ghost story. It's great. She's at a Christmas party at a mansion, and it's a bunch of kids, and they're all running around, and they all have costumes on. It's so cute. And there's somebody playing the piano. You know, I mean, it's just so <laughs> interesting, this sort of child entertainment. And they say, one of the one of the boys, I don't remember his name, says, hey, let's play sardines. And she's like, what's sardines? And he says, well, it's like hide and seek. So you, you, who wants to be it? And she's like, oh, I'll, I'll run and hide. So she runs off and hides, and the kids all count. And she goes upstairs kind of to the landing and gets behind a curtain in front of a window. And this boy is the first one to find her. And he... Got you. It's all right. I'll go quietly. Shh. I'll stop here with you. When somebody else finds us, they pack in too, like sardines. Oh, it's cold in here. Cold, eh? That better? Mm-hmm. Yet this kid is still kind of trying to mack on her as well. Yeah. <laughs> In a very 1940s innocent way, it's cute. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's very, it's very youthful and flirty. It um, is. And it's cute. And she's being very debonair. And she's like, she stands up, you know, and, and it's like, well, he's like, wait a minute, I, I have a better place. And I'm like, yeah, I bet you sure do. <laughs> <laughs> and they run upstairs to like the attic. Oh, his name is Jimmy, I think. And he tells her that there was a horrible murder that actually that happened in this mansion and in this very spot 
that uh, a boy was found with his head cut off and some uh, his sister or some girl had head cut his throat or something. She kind of runs around and he runs out. I don't remember exactly how it ends up, but she ends up going deeper into the attic. And uh, mm-hmm. there's like a door that's down this old hallway that looks like it hasn't been used in a while. It's behind a wardrobe. I thought that was kind of interesting. Like she, I, I, I don't remember if she moved the wardrobe or if like she opened the wardrobe and there was a hidden door inside. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was kind of hidden away. And when she goes in, at first I thought like a bedroom she later describes it as a nursery which makes sense little and kids again room, like basically. yeah like like I said I mean it's just it's just classic ghost story stuff it's great yeah and it's this little boy who's crying uh sitting on a on a chair and he says his name is Francis Kent and he's upset and uh, he says oh I thought you were my sister Constance I didn't notice her either all the other girls seem much younger than me I wish you were my sister. You're so kind and nice. Why? Is she unkind to you, darling? She hates me. She said she'd like to kill me. Oh, don't. You poor little thing. She tucks him into bed at night, sings him a song, and walks out. In the meantime, the kids are downstairs, and they're all together getting ready to eat. And they're like, wait a minute, where did where is she? And, he, and he's like, oh, I need to run back up and find her. So she comes down as he goes back up. And I swear, as she leaves the room... I don't know if it was just a portrait or what, but I thought I saw a girl in the background of that room I, when she. Was I there. did not notice, but I did read that yes, she is kind of lingering in the background. Yeah, I did a bit of a double take, and I was like, "Ooh, that was creepy." But I think it, I thought I, I wrote it off as a portrait that had been like set on the ground. Anyway, she comes downstairs and uh, she explains to the house mom or whatever that uh, you know she met the boy. Kent upstairs. She's like, what are you talking about? And uh, she's told by them that Francis Kent was murdered by his sister Constance. And then it ends. <laughs> yep, that's, that's it. it. I mean, you kind of want a little bit more, right? Like, oh, are they all going to rush upstairs to find the room is empty? Or, you know, what's what's going to happen? But, but no, it just ends right there. That's a little disappointing. I think that's a weakness of this story is that it doesn't feel satisfying conclusion. Well, yeah, but at the same time, I mean, I, I feel like that is typical of older ghost stories where it's just like she's been dead for 50 years like, <laughs> it's, like, it's like urban legend scary stories to tell in the dark kind of material right <laughs> right <Yeah>. right <laughs> which is which is cute and it is that's one of the stories that was cut for the american release which i i don't know how they made those decisions because i found that story to be one of the more charming ones yeah apparently that's not the ghost part, obviously, but the the murder was based on a true story. This teen teenage girl murdered her toddler brother. I think he was like four or something like that. And well, she can she confessed to the murder. And then I guess there were all kinds of theories that maybe she had been coerced into confessing, or she had confessed to protect somebody else in her family, or something like that. But it's kind of an unsolved thing. I I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. And then we dive back into the wraparound story. And I thought they did something kind of cute here because Craig mentions that, uh, oh, by the way, like Sally is going to get whisked away here. Well, he says he doesn't remember exactly what happens, but all he remembers is that at some point he hits Sally really hard. Mm. Um, He says, but I don't understand 
how that could happen because you're going to leave soon. Mm-hmm. And then she does. Her mother shows up and whisks her away. And her mother is hilarious. Her mother is funny. But but they try to short, short circuit it, right? They say, oh, well, then this is going to break the spell or as one person right. says, then it, we're just going to make insist that Sally stays. And she's like, all right, then I'm staying. And like you said, her mother comes in and just very insistently says, oh, you got to You got to get going. You got to get going. You got a party to get to tomorrow or something like that. And she won't take no for an answer. So she whisks her away. So that ends up coming true. Yeah. And that's cute. You're right. Her mother is hilarious. <laughs> but, there, but there's still kind of the mystery because he says he knows that he hits her, but now she's gone. So, yeah, like, I, is she going to come back? You know, I didn't know what was mm-hmm. going on. But then it jumps right into Joan's story immediately. I think the movie kind of does an interesting subversion here because you've gotten two stories that are still, I mean, they're sinister, but they're still pretty light in tone. And I feel like this third story took a turn for the dark. Yeah, I I, I guess. I don't know. I mean, you've said a couple of times now, Twilight Zone and, and the old original Twilight Zone. That is very much what this reminds me of, you know, spooky and creepy, but tame. Well, and a variety. And a variety, yes. There were Twilight Zone episodes that were just, like, comedic. Yes. Uh, and we get some of that here, too, later. And and there were some that were, you know, more sci-fi, and there were some that were more horror. Like, there there was a variety. I've always liked the Twilight Zone. I've li- I haven't seen the most recent iteration. You know, every 10, 20 years, it, they revive it. And mm-hmm. um, I remember watching it in the 80s, and I liked it then. So it's not that I don't like this type of stuff, and it's really not even that I don't like this movie. I just didn't love it. Yeah. But Joan's story, uh, again, really not anything that you haven't seen before. It's about mm-hmm. a haunted mirror. There are, so, I mean, my goodness, how many movies and stories have we read about haunted mirrors? A bazillion. <laughs> okay, so she bought her husband this old mirror for his birthday, and they hang it up in their bedroom and when he initially when they when they both initially look in it together he kind of acts like he sees something strange in it but they just brush it off but then when he's alone he looks into the mirror and he sees himself reflected in it but the mirror reflects and shows him in an unfamiliar room it is not the room that he's in not at all the room he's in is very plain oh very yes little to nothing on the walls it's basically just a bed in a room but the the room that was reflected back is ornate like it looks like a room in a old mansion or a castle or something it's got a a very heavy four-poster canopy bed and um like a, a dressing table and paneled walls fireplace oh yeah fireplace all kinds of ornate decorations and furnishings and the first time he sees it he kind of does the thing that people do in movies and probably in real life. He squeezes his eyes closed real tight and kind of rubs them and <laughs> he uh, opens his eyes and it's gone. But he tells Joan about it at dinner. They just shrug it off. But he sees it again later that night and when he tries to make it go away, it won't. And then Joan is like narrating the story. She says, well, and then some time went by. We were really busy planning our wedding and we were looking for a new house. But... She says, Peter all along was acting strange and kind of irritable. He calls her a nag at one point. (laughs) Yeah. Uncharacteristically, like, he just kind of, she says something, I mean, not 
offensive at all. And he just snaps at her and he, the, and, and she calls him on it and, and he apologizes and he just says, I haven't been sleeping well. And he, he tells her, he tells her what's going on with the mirror and he says, now it's gotten worse and he sees it every night and he can't make it go away. And he says, and I feel like there's something, like the mirror is trying to draw me in. He says, it's like there's something waiting for me on the other side. Something evil. (laughs) (laughs) She offers to get rid of it, which would be an easy solution. Excellent idea, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. But he's like, oh, no, no, I'm sure it's just in my head. But maybe... But maybe we should postpone the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. He's like, he's like something about, you know, maybe you should just divorce me now or whatever. And she says, look, she, she says my favorite line in this movie. It's I loved it. Really, darling, you're going a little bit too fast for me. Let's get the wedding over and then we can start making divorce arrangements afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> but, that was a great line. But she she kind of cures him of it, or at least they think that he, she's cured him of it, because she says, look, describe it to me. And he describes, there's the four poster, there's the whatever, you know, it it has the vines running up the top of it, carved into the, into the posts and blah, 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 blah. And she says, well, come over here and look at it with me, with me in there. And the thing is, he can't see her in the mirror, even when he's she's standing right next to him but she holds his hand and that somehow seems to kind of break the spell yeah and when she holds his hand suddenly he can see the room again the the actual room not Mm -hmm. not the ghost room or whatever right the actual room so at this point the reason they don't get rid of the mirror i think is he thinks that they've gotten over it they've solved it and uh, it's all in his mind anyway Uh, this is another story i think where he's going to see a psychologist right and the psychologist is trying to explain away what's going on just says your mental state is weird right now because of blah blah blah. I don't remember the reason he gives, but uh, oh well, you know they're getting married, they're moving, you know there's all kinds of change going on. Yeah, they get married and um, they move to a new house and take the mirror with them. And she needs to. She's going on a trip to visit her mother, and she wants him to go with her and, and tries to convince him to go with her, but he won't. And once she's gone, the ghostly room is back mm-hmm. when he looks in the mirror. And while she's away visiting her mother, I don't know if her mother lives in the same city. I, I, it doesn't matter. But she happens to walk by the shop where she got the mirror. And looking in the window, she notices that the bed from the ghostly room, which he had described to her in detail, she notices that it's in there. And so she goes and she talks to the shop owner about it. And she asks about the mirror and she asks about the bed. And he's like, funny, you should ask. Because they both came from the same estate. And the shop holder says they that they both belong to the same guy. And this guy was disabled in an accident. And then he went crazy because he believed his wife was being unfaithful. And so he strangled his wife and killed her. And then sat down in front of the mirror and slit his own throat. Yeah. Which freaks her out. <laughs> appropriately so <And laughs> right this is framed really well by the way the cinematography in this movie the lighting everything is really good and i love the way that this is framed because as he's standing and talking to her and she's sitting there and the camera's slowly dollying in on them you see the portrait of this guy who he's talking about you know this 1836 guy or whatever between them kind of staring between them at them as he's telling the story it's like a little shadow hanging over him telling the story it's suitably creepy i think but yeah she returns home 
and he is not himself. He is sitting there and he's talking about how he's been, you know, stuck in this room and you know, you you were gone. Oh, I know you you know, I know why you were gone. You were gone to see, I don't know, so and so. He basically accuses her of being unfaithful. He goes crazy and uh he says he's going to end things and he picks up his uh a scarf or something and stands up and starts to strangle her. And so they have a tussle in front of the mirror and she grabs a candlestick and swings it at the mirror and shatters the mirror which breaks the spell mm-hmm. and, then she, and she walks over and kind of like starts to somewhat gingerly pull the mirror apart <laughs> and, and she talks about it's all rotten it, uh, like the wood behind the frame is all rotten and stuff and well, yeah. I was just like, oh, careful, careful. Don't cut yourself. <laughs> well, right. But I guess in an interview decades later, she talked about how she only had one take to to do this because it was not within their budget to replace the mirror and do it again. And so she said, I, so I just went to town on it. <laughs> <laughs> it oh, which I thought was great. But the spell is broken. And that's again, that's it. That's the end of the story. Yeah, but but after this, I think that the interstitial like visibly gets darker. It does. It's darker outside, but like I said, this story is a little darker, and it it clearly they're moving towards a more dark tone overall with the movie. In this very brief, back to the frame story, very briefly, Van Straten is still very skeptical and yeah. and has a rational explanation for everything, but Walter is the you know the paranoid guy is is scared and he wants to leave he feels like leaving is the only way that he can break the spell or whatever it is but van straten says that he should stay or else the delusion wins mm-hmm. and as walter's trying to leave elliot kind of sidesteps him and gets him to stay by launching into his story and you said that you know at this point the movie is getting darker but str- yeah then this story elliot's story is a comedy it's comedy yeah yeah I mean, again, it's kind of a classic ghost story, but it's a comic ghost story. Well, and this is also pretty typical of a lot of the anthology, not a lot, but many of the anthologies we've seen where suddenly they'll throw a comedic thing in to sort of lighten the mood a little bit. And I suppose the idea is that they're creating some balance or things are getting a little too frightening for the audience. So we need to lighten it up a little bit before we... You know, before we end it? Well, I mean, it it is typical of anthology film and anthology series because you kind of never know what you're going to get. It's Mm -hmm. always a hodgepodge of things. And sometimes they'll be dark and serious and sometimes they'll be light and comedic. I mean, Tales from the Crypt was like that, too. And that was one of the things that I liked about it. Sometimes those episodes were really funny. And this one is funny. But again, it's just so old school that I think it's just kind of before my time. I mean... It's not as farcical, but it's a little bit kind of like Abbott and Costello kind of stuff. It is, and it's also very much, I think, a product of its time because it's actually a reference to some well-known characters from another movie. Well, the, these these two actors, I think, were known for playing two other characters. Like, they, they, they worked together and, yeah. and had kind of this character duo, and I think that they are playing basically their famous roles. They just changed the names to avoid, like, copyright infringement or whatever. Exactly, yeah. They were, like, obsessed with cricket, and they were characters on the train in The Lady Vanishes, you know, the 1938 Alfred Hitchcock version, and... 
they have played those characters, sometimes under different names, sometimes obsessed with a different sport, but the same guys essentially playing the same characters in lots of different movies and even on stage. So this this would be a reference that nobody today would get, but maybe people right. of the time would have been charmed by. Uh, and so they maybe knew what they were getting uh, instantly. It's sort of this goofy, silly story about these two guys who are obsessed with golf and, and both rapidly fall in love with the same woman. Named. Right, they're best friends, but then this beautiful woman, Mary, comes in between them, and they are both smitten with her, and she's smitten with both of them mm. and can't decide which one to pick, so they decide that they will play a round of golf, uh, and whoever wins, wins her. And she's like, yes, that's a perfect idea. She's thrilled with and- it. <laughs> <laughs> might as well flip a coin, but yeah. Right? So, so they play golf, um, and they get to the last hole and it's very close. George wins, but Larry thinks that he cheated. And so he just walks into the water hazard and drowns himself. <laughs> yeah, just slowly <laughs> walks into the lake until he's under the water and just his hat is floating into the top. <laughs> yep, just which, casually. Which Nobody says anything. Nobody tries to stop him. Like, uh-huh. oh, I guess he's dead now. Okay, so, <laughs> so then Mary is with George and George is out playing golf before they get married and he hears Larry's voice by the water hazard. Oh, yes. It's me, all right. I've returned from my watery grave and then there's a very comedic scene where the ghost is like messing with the golf ball and these you know i will say terrible effects only because they're a product of their time i mean for the time fine but like the ball is floating around and like the the actor is acting like he's trying to swing his golf club but something is like preventing him like some like some ghostly force is holding on to his club and then the golf ball like they do this hilarious thing where the two actors on screen like just track the golf ball with their eyes like uh, swinging in a big circle and then it lands right back in front of them it's really funny and then Eventually, uh, Larry appears to George in the lodge saying that he'll haunt him forever. He'll go away under two conditions, that he leave Mary and that he give up golf. <laughs> and he's all ready to leave Mary. Well, I guess yeah. I don't know if it's what I got to do. But he's like, give up golf. And he just like throws his chair backwards <laughs> and goes crazy. <laughs> I might as well be dead. <laughs> Which oh, it's really I funny. found hilarious, actually. <laughs> oh, it was really funny. And then George is basically like, listen, come on. I, I realize that what I did to you was bad, but we were friends for forever. Cut me a break. And Larry's like, ah, you know what? You're right. I'll leave you alone. And he tries to disappear, but he can't. Like, he says he can't remember how. Like, what gestures he has to use or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's all very silly and slapsticky, but... George is trying to help him and of course you know like the bartender sees him and he looks ridiculous and looks crazy and Larry says well I guess if I can't disappear I'm just going to be with you forever and I have to be within six feet of you that's the rules (laughs) (laughs) so George and Mary get married and then they're on their honeymoon and Larry's just there like sitting on the couch next to them encouraging George to get romantic with Mary but like George can't because like his friend is just sitting there on the couch oh, with them it's funny i mean she, he's like it kissing is funny her. you know he's covering his eyes while george is kissing her and then um he's like oh come on this is crazy and she's like well i think it's about time for me to ask me to turn in for the night and he's like yeah i guess i have time for me to turn in too so they start to walk towards the bedroom door and of course 
you know, uh, Larry is following right behind them. And George is like, come on, man. You can't come in here. <laughs> and he's like, sorry, man. I don't make the rules. It's six feet. Then he says something to kind of trick him. And uh, Larry kind of stands there and isn't paying attention. George goes into the room further than six feet, shuts the door. Suddenly, Larry disappears. And immediately, George and Larry come walking out of the room again because he you know, reappeared apparently right next to George. Uh, it was funny. I, I really liked this byplay, actually. It was funny. It was cute. George tries to help Larry figure out how to disappear and accidentally makes himself disappear. <laughs> <laughs> so Larry's like, oh, man, what do I do? Well, I guess I go to bed with Mary. <laughs> and he walks towards the bedroom. End of story. Yeah. Oh, funny. Back to the frame story. Van Stratton tells Walter that if something horrible were to have happened, it should have already happened because all of the things that Walter had predicted have already come true. And if they've already come true, then the evil should have already happened or whatever. Yeah. So Van Stratton tells his story, which again is very typical. We've seen this story before, but I thought that it was well done here. I think that maybe this one was my favorite one. This is the first time we've really seen this story. This was the inspiration for countless stories like it afterwards, movies uh-huh. and stories as well. So. Like magic with Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, and- it's very groundbreaking, I think. There, there are a bunch of them. But it's... The, okay, so Van Stratton tells this story. There was this guy named Maxwell Frere who was a ventriloquist who was accused of attempted murder. Van Stratton, being a doctor, is called in to, like, examine him. And Frere says, before he'll talk, he wants his dummy back. And so the police give Van Stratton this um, statement from a guy named Key, who it turns out was the guy that Frere tried to murder. But I don't know if we know that initially. Mm-hmm. Through the statement, we find out that Key went to see Frere perform, and Frere is a very popular, very um, well-known ventriloquist, and he's doing his thing with Hugo the Dummy, but you can just kind of tell from the beginning that the dummy is rogue. Yeah. That Frere is really not in control of what the dummy does or says, and he kind of just has to roll with it. He's sort of sweating it, you know? And I I actually, God, I thought the acting was fantastic in this one. The guy who plays Frere does a really good job. Yeah, he's Michael Redgrave, Vanessa Redgrave's father, you know, too. Oh, very I didn't know that. Sir, Sir Michael Redgrave, you know, back when it was pretty rare to actually be like knighted for acting. He's, you know, like kind of a peer of Laurence Olivier and those folks. I mean, he is well decorated, very, very famous acting dynasty family. So I just, I was totally taken in by his thing. And I also felt like. At times, it was a little nebulous. Like, I feel like I'm watching a horror movie. I expect this to be supernatural. But I'm still not quite sure if the dummy itself has its own personality or if he still is sort of like himself, maybe, like, has kind of a multi-personality thing and he's kind of a psychological thing. You know, I found myself in the psychologist's shoes for the first time, kind of arguing for the rational explanation as I was watching this. Yeah, And I think that it's intentionally a little bit ambiguous, especially at the end. Mm -hmm. What happens is the ventriloquist and the dummy are conversing with people in the audience. And when they talk to this guy, Key, it turns out that Key is also a ventriloquist. And Hugo, the dummy, immediately takes interest in him and starts saying, like, "Uh, maybe I'll leave this dumbass and, and join you. And Key, you know, plays along like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then it seems like 
the dummy goes totally rogue. Like, they're supposed to sing a song, and the, the dummy refuses to sing, and Frere is, like, visibly anxious. Like, he's sweating and, and clearly nervous, and he eventually just retreats off stage, and then the dummy peeks back out from behind the curtain and is like, hey, Key, come see me back in my dressing room. We've got to talk, or whatever. And so Key does go back there to talk to him, and at first, he hears the dummy talking to him, and Frere is nowhere to be found, and the dummy says a couple of things to him before before he locates where the dummy is sitting. Glad to see you, Sylvester. Mix yourself a drink. Now let's get down to business, eh? And when he locates where the dummy is sitting, he doesn't say anything more at that point. And Frere comes out of the bathroom, and he's like, oh, you'll have to teach me that trick. And the guy's like, oh, did he talk to you? What did he say? And he's <laughs> like, oh, ha ha, very funny. But then uh, later, Frere is out at the bar presumably of this hotel that they're staying at or whatever. And um, he's drunk and he's just got the dummy sitting there next to him. And these women come in with this guy and it seems like they are a little boozy too. And they recognize Frere and one of them goes over and uh, starts messing with the dummy a little bit. And the dummy says some obnoxious things to her and she's offended and goes back and tells the guy that she's with, you know, go defend my honor or whatever. And he, he does he goes over to Frere and starts, you know, threatening him. And the dummy continues to say insulting things. So this guy gets up in Frere's face, but Key kind of gets in between them and gets them away and takes Frere upstairs to his room. And Frere is completely drunk. He puts him in bed, covers him up, sits the dummy on the bed with him, and then he goes back to his room. In the middle of the night, there's Frantic knocking on his door and he opens it up and it's Frere. And he's like, where is he? I know you have him. And Key's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But eventually, Frere's like looking around the room and he finds Hugo the dummy. And Key is obviously surprised. Like, he has no idea how he got there. But Frere is incensed, picks up the dummy, but then pulls a gun. Yeah. And shoots Key several times. Yeah. Thought he was dead. Yeah. So then Van Staden, after reading this wants to talk to Frere again. And so he goes to his jail cell and he brings Hugo with him. And at first, Frere is afraid of the dummy. Like, he gets up and, like, retreats into a corner of the room. But they lock the dummy in there with him. And Van Staden watches them talk to one another. And the dummy is really mean. Like, talking about how he's going to leave Frere in there to rot and he's going to go find Key and they're going to have a great career and maybe they'll visit him in the loony bin or whatever. Mm -hmm. As Van Stodden's watching and eventually calling for the orderlies, Frere tries to smother Hugo and eventually stomps his head. And then apparently some time passes and Van Stodden brings Key, the guy who was shot, to visit Frere, hoping that seeing him will cure him or something? Yeah, I don't know. it's a little nebulous, isn't it? What's going on there? We see that since the stomping of the dummy, Frere has been catatonic. He's just sitting in a bed staring off into space. They try to talk to him, and when he realizes, when Frere realizes that it's Key that's there to see him, he starts talking to him, but he has this frozen kind of smile on his face, and when he talks... It's Hugo's voice. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know, like either Hugo has possessed, for lack of a better word, Frere, or there was some psychological, maybe if, if, you know, your theory is 
correct. Maybe it was psychological all the time. Maybe it was like a split personality kind of deal. It's a very well-constructed uh, bit because there's never a moment where the dummy talks like where his the dummy's mouth is moving, the dummy's being animated, where Frere doesn't have his hands on it. We never see it. I, I mean, the, the dummy talks to Key... When he first comes in into the, the room. But he doesn't move his mouth. His no. mouth isn't moving. Or he, at least we don't see it. We don't, we don't see him talking at all. We just hear it. Yeah, so you're right. Exactly. We never see him animated. We never see him animated if the other guy isn't touching him. Exactly. So it's still a little nebulous exactly what's going on. I want to believe it was a possessed dummy, but uh, gosh, Redgrave really sells this one, man. He really sells it. And it's very, nat- I think, very naturalistic acting, actually. He's just sweating at bullets, and you just see his breakdown. He's drunk at one point. You know, he's just nervous. He just doesn't even seem to be there. You know, like his mind is on other things. Fantastic acting. And we can't talk about this episode without mentioning Beola, the character of Beola. Oh, who, yeah. Who is um, an, actually an African-American actress in a shockingly progressive role for, an, mm-hmm. for a person of color at this time who are normally relegated to dumb little comedic roles or, you know, Or like nanny roles, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she is like the owner of this club or something. She's like super successful or she's a singer in there. She talks with a glamorous. Very glamorous, standing here right next to these these A-list actors holding her own. She gets a a bit of a song number in there. It's actually Mm kind of clever. Like she starts singing a song and I thought, oh, this is charming. Are we going to be treated to an entire musical number in the middle of this? But... You know, after about a minute of that, then it cuts to that whole scene that happens in Frere's dressing room. And it's like the length of that scene is the length of her song. Mm-hmm. You can hear it faintly in the background the whole time. And then by the time they come out, it cuts back to her and she finishes the tune. Mm-hmm. It's really, really cute, clever. I, I think the whole... And very progressive for 1945. Like, like incredibly progressive. Oh, this woman got really lucky. I mean, don't get me wrong, she's very talented, but like, oh, yeah. e- even that didn't often matter. And uh, and she had a lot of big roles uh, in screen and on stage and lived a much better life as an African-American actress than most of her peers at this time. So, I, And this movie... Uh, was one of her first big roles where where she did that. And even reviews at the time kind of mentioned how she was a, a bright star in this film. So Kudos to her and kudos to the filmmakers. That's, mm-hmm. that's great. Okay. And then it goes back to uh, the frame story where everything pays off. Um, Van Staden breaks his glasses, as was predicted. The lights dim, as was predicted. And Walter says, it started. <laughs> and then for some reason he requests to be left alone with Van Staden like he just wants to talk to him alone and, and they're all like okay <laughs> okay and so they all leave Walter I don't know he talks a little bit but basically he's like I knew this was going to happen it was inevitable and now I have an urge to kill you <laughs> <laughs> and he strangles him with something and then he starts running through the house, but actually what he runs through is all the stories, mm-hmm. which is really kind of cool. Like, he he runs through these scenarios that we had seen. So he runs through the Christmas party, and as he's running through the Christmas party, he bumps into Sally, who starts screaming. And so he punches her and knocks her out, as he predicted he would earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. He runs through, I think, all of them, but he ends up in the cell 
Frere's cell from the last story, and Hugo is in there, but this time Hugo is played by what must be a little person or a child. Mm-hmm. So he's definitely wearing some sort of dummy head mask, but he gets up and walks towards him and, and hovers over him, and then Hugo That's creepy. starts... Start. It was very creepy. Hugo starts strangling him, and then all of a sudden you hear the sound of an alarm clock, and Walter wakes up in his bed, in his home. His wife is there, and immediately he gets a telephone call from a guy named Elliot asking him to come do a consultation at Pilgrim's Farm. And Walter says to his wife, I wonder why that sounds so familiar. (laughs) (laughs) And then it just cuts back to the opening scene where you see his car approaching the estate and you see him stop in front of it and look at it quizzically. And then the end comes up on the screen and that's it. I mean, like it, it was it was obvious that that was going to happen. But at the same time, it was a little satisfying to actually see it yeah. play out. Well, interestingly enough, an odd bit of trivia is that this movie directly inspired three mathematicians and astronomers to come up with the steady state theory of the universe. These guys are Thomas Gold, Fred Hoyle, and Herman Bondi, who uh, were discussing with one another, hey, wait a minute. Did you see that movie, Dead of Night? Maybe this is how the universe really is. It's constantly in a steady state and just looping back on itself. And from a physics perspective, the idea is that although the universe is expanding, matter is constantly being created and forming new galaxies so that the average number of galaxies in any part of the universe is, is approximately the same. Really interesting. I don't know, I don't know how much um, credence that's given nowadays, but uh, to think that this horror movie inspired this notion is kind of cute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when all is said and done, and, and gosh, this happens all the time, and I always feel kind of stupid and redundant saying it, but talking it out with you makes me appreciate it even more. I, I, I do appreciate it for what it is. I, I think that it's good storytelling, charming storytelling, a different style of acting, but well done nonetheless. I'm not going to watch it again. I don't know that I would necessarily recommend it to my friends, but it was not a waste of my time. It's an interesting kind of charming piece of nostalgia that you know, gives you some, a window into a different time. Mm. And I do love these uh, anthology movies, and if this in any way paved the way for those movies that I love, then I am grateful for that. And so um, I'm not mad about it. You know, I didn't didn't hate it. I'm not mad at you for picking it. Not my cup of tea, but uh, I get it. I get why it's been well received. I get why it has a following. I understand why you picked it. I'll, I'll go as far as it's a good movie. It is good. I mean, it's definitely good. I mean, technically, it's great. I'm Seriously, the cinematography, the lighting is very moody. It's very well done, very well thought out. The acting is top-notch, even though it's a different style of acting than we're used to. These are all beautiful people doing a fantastic job. And highly influential. We rattled off a whole bunch of ways that this movie influenced the, the movies that came after it. You remember that movie Triangle that took place on that boat? Yeah. Mm-hmm, yep. This movie directly inspired Christopher Smith, who wrote and directed that that movie, for its concept. Uh, Martin Scorsese puts this as, like, number five on his list of the 11 wow. scariest horror movies. I, huh. I, mean, I don't know how that could be, but... 
I think what he probably means is just movies that he thinks has a have a have a deep impact or impacted mm-hmm. him. So yeah, it's very well respected. I think for very good reason, mm-hmm. and uh, I found it enjoyable to watch. And I'm glad we watched the long version. But mm-hmm. I, I would say I was ready for it to be done by the time it was done. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that, like you said, the last one was definitely the best. It was the most complex and most interesting. It was the one that had me guessing the most, wondering where it was going to go and whether this was supernatural or whether this was just a a freaky guy. And just ventriloquist dummies. They're just creepy. Yep. Yep. Yeah, really enjoyed it. And I'm glad this could be a a dive way back into the past, a bit of the origins of our horror anthology series. Coming up, we have one more selected for you that's definitely going to be a bit more modern. Yeah. And we hope you've enjoyed what we've been doing this month. Uh, If you do enjoy it, please find us online. Just Google Two Guys in a Chainsaw. Find our website. Find our Facebook page, our Twitter feed. Let us know what you think. Let us know some anthologies we should review. We will come back and revisit this this topic from time to time. Oh, of course. Yeah. There's, There's a lot of them out there. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys in a Chainsaw. 